be seated at this time. And we're also going to be dismissing our children with Mr. Callie and I believe Mrs. Bissell as they uh, continue to learn about the gospel and Christ uh, in their children's ministry downstairs. So we send them with our prayers and anticipation that they continue to grow in Christ. Amen? Amen. Taking the initiative in a relationship. That's really what this summer, for us as a congregation, uh, has really been focused on. Many of you are aware of the fact that this summer we embarked on a journey known as the residency, or interns, whatever you want to call it. This idea that we brought in three men uh, who were giving their time and attention to taking initiative in the lives of people in a neighborhood that God has clearly placed us in, this North Syracuse. Okay, so this summer has been truly a, a journey of taking the initiative. The, the cookout that we had, uh, we just felt compelled by the Lord that, you know what, we're going to take the initiative and invite people to come and we want to get to know them. Uh, we had many prayer walks over the summer. Uh, our last one was just this past Wednesday. And again, as awkward and maybe difficult as it is for us, we continued to take steps to be initiating relationship with this community. That is, we were not content to simply put up a sign out front and say, hope, uh, we hope they show up. But in really understanding our identity and our call, no, 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 that's kind of awkward and difficult. We're going to go, take the initiative, shake the hand, introduce ourselves to this community. All of that is on the foundation that God has taken the initiative in relationship to us, hasn't He? That is, He did not uh, twiddle His thumbs and wait for us to show up at His door. Right? God saw who we were, he recognized our state, and he took the initiative to uh, have a relationship with us. Has this not been a major theme in the book of Exodus? 400 years stuck in slavery was the nation of Israel. And yes, they cried out. And yes, God heard their cry, but it was on the basis of a promise he had made long ago to Abraham. So God is taking the initiative in relationship, and he's following through on his promises to his people. He's hearing, he's acting, and he is powerfully setting them free. As we enter in once again to this section in the law, the code, right? If you're an IRS agent, you're getting very excited, right? Any IRS agents here? No, right? They're home reading the code, right? They're excited about the code, the laws, right? But as we enter into the code, let's not forget the context. It's a relational context. God is taking the initiative. He set these people free. He's revealed himself in redemption, in the saving of a people, and now all the more, he's revealing himself, who he is, what he desires, 
really he's revealing himself and saying, this is why I have set you free from slavery. We've seen already that God's redemption and his law is a way to what? Continue to reveal his character, his righteousness. And that righteousness, he wants it to be not just some mountaintop experience, it's Sinai, but something that is integrated and applied to every single aspect of our lives. And so we get into these uh, uh, legal passages. If this happens, then this is the application of my Ten Commandments, my words, my ways. And so today we continue to ask the question, how do I respond to the initiative of God in my life to save me? Or maybe this way would be helpful. How do I represent the righteousness of God Monday through Friday? How do I represent the character, the nature of God in every conceivable situation based on His character? So today we're going to read in three separate chunks, a very large section of Scripture again. Okay, so I want you to grab your Bibles. We're going to open them up. If it's your smartphone, click that button, right? Smartphones allowed at Renovation Church, assuming you're on your Bible app, okay? And we're also going to be putting them up on the screens for you. We're going to be reading uh, sections, uh, three sections, and kind of highlighting some major themes as to how we represent the character and righteousness of God in some particular areas of life. So I'm going to start by reading uh, chapter 22. So open up to Exodus 22. I'm going to read 16, 17, then 21 through 27, and then also chapter 23, verse 9. Okay? You guys excited about this? Come on, man. We're going to be doing burpees and, and sit-ups in a minute just to get the blood flowing. You excited? Yeah, the code, the law. All right, let's do it. Verse 16 of chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. If, you, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering and is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. 
verse 1 of 23. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is indeed God's word and all God's people said, Amen. So you can imagine a young voice on the other end of the line saying this, hi, Grandma, do you know who this is? And then the elderly woman trying to kind of figure out that voice, it's which one of their grandchildren is this? Is this Sally? Yes, it is Sally. Absolutely. Hi, Grandma, it's Sally. Hey, I need to let you know something that's going on, right? Are you ready for this one? My car broke down, and my rent's overdue. Please don't tell Mommy and Daddy, please. Can you help me out, Grandma? Please? Can you do me a favor? Can you quickly wire some money through Western Union to this so-and-so spot? If you do that for me, I would be so appreciative, Grandma. Please don't tell Mom and Dad. There are many people who have fallen prey to the grandma scam. True thing. Sick. That wasn't Sally. That was someone trying to be Sally and trying to get grandma to send some money. The grandma scam. It's really sick. You know what it tells me? That there's a lot of people out there in the world that are looking to gain an advantage in life by taking advantage of someone else. That's the world in which we live, isn't it? And so we see a section in these verses that is devoted to laying out God's heart for His people in reference to those that are most ignored and that are often taken advantage of. He knows the nature of his saved people, what they're like, what they're prone to do. He understands our fallen condition. And so his character, his righteousness is being applied to his people in saying, for those that you would ignore the most, that you would be careless and indifferent to their needs, for those that you would see their position, their vulnerability, and take advantage of that for your own advantage. Here's my character. Here's my righteousness. This is how I would treat these people. 
right? Is that not what the law is, right? We've talked about this before. The law is what? It's a restraint. Please, there's the line. You're going to fall off the cliff. Don't go anywhere near that. Stay within these boundaries of my holiness and righteousness. It's also what? A reflection. When you look at the law, you see yourself. That you are not righteous in and of yourself. And lastly, we see that it is revealing the nature of God. This is the God that these people have been redeemed by and are worshiping on this mountain. And you say, what kind of God is that? Well, in the midst of all of these verses, there are a couple of things that tell us about the kind of God that is commanding these things. Verse 27 says this, I am compassionate. He's gracious. Right? He hears and responds to the cry of those who are stuck. He's postured with benevolence towards those who are oppressed, who have no roots, who are unprotected, under-resourced, uncared for, ignored, cast aside, and taken advantage of. This is the nature of this God gracious. He bestows his favor upon those we would think least deserve it. They've not earned it. This is the grace of our God. He will surely hear their cry, verse 23 and 24. If he cries, I will hear, he says, verse 27, right? This is the righteousness of our God. He's gracious, And it is his expectation that his redeemed people represent that righteousness by being gracious in all their relationships. Grace becomes the definitive marker of a people redeemed by a gracious God. That we don't relate in a way that we would typically be prone to, to to gain an advantage by taking advantage of somebody. But no, we're postured with an attitude of benevolence, love, care, compassion, even to those who are most vulnerable to us. There's a list of folks here, verse 16 and 17, where it's called to represent God's grace in relationship to young women who are virgins. Yes, You see the command, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. You shall not desire another man's daughter, another man's wife. This is not in keeping with God's will. We see again God's heart that he has great value and worth as he looks at his young women. Right? He he loves them. He cares for them. He wants to protect them. He understands their beauty understands the proper context for enjoying that beauty. We see that he's passionate about purity in sexual relationships, about marital fidelity. He's honoring the father and the mother. This is our God. And yet he understands the nature of young men who live in an Ashley Madison society. Does anyone know what I'm talking about today? Ashley Madison, this mess. I can't remember. The statistics change every single day. I'm trying to keep up with this stuff. Millions and gazillions of people are on it. 
supposedly only three zip codes in, North Amer or in, in America don't have people that have accounts. Ashley Madison is this site where people can go to and have a secret adulterous relationship with somebody else, even though they're married. What an awful thing to think about. But we live in a world that, that momentary sexual pleasure is treasured at the expense of manning up. And taking responsibility to care for and love and protect vulnerable young women. Do we need to go into the, the ills of pornography? Where, again, property, women are treated as property. What about sex trafficking? How about that global reality? That's the world that we live in. And yet God sees these young women and these young men, and he says, if you do this, you're going to pay. Right? You're going to pay. He says this, verse 16 and 17, you shall give the bride price for her if you lie with a woman that's not betrothed to be your wife. You'll, you'll make her your wife. And if the father is thinking right, and he's like, no way. Then you're going to pay anyway. Right? That God's heart is to protect. And if you don't man up, you're going to pay up. Is really God's heart in this situation to protect those most vulnerable. How about sojourners? Right? Those passing through. Those that have no relational roots in a place. They have no deep connection to the community. They're passing through. How are you to treat them? You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. Why? For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then again, verse 9 of 23, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know these people because you were one of them. So those passing through, those that we might say, why invest in them? They're only going to be here for a short time. There's no payback for us. So often the church has postured itself towards those who visit, those who are here for a, a season of maybe being a student, those who don't have relational roots and history here that aren't from here. And we've said, eh, what's the point? But that's not God's heart. God's heart for those who are his people are that they represent the grace and compassion and the welcoming acceptance of God who, guess what, did that to Israel. Who's done that to us. When we had no roots, no connection to God, what did He do? He welcomed us. He accepted us. He brought us in. He treated those who were not His family as His family. And there was an awesome opportunity this week to, to say goodbye to a friend who I'd only known for six months this week who came through, he's passing through. His name is Sam. I got to know him and really grown to appreciate him. I'm, I'm not sure where he is with his faith. He, he's, he's on a journey trying to discover Jesus, I believe. Um, but it was awesome to look at him in the eyes and say, I want you to know something, that although we've go, you've only been here for six months, that if you ever need a place, you ever need a refuge, you ever need a family, uh, the Maisies are that for you. And the shock on his face, that you would make that kind of a commitment, you would make that kind of 
posture. You would, you would extend that kind of grace to me, even though we've only met like four times for breakfast. How about our relationship with the refugees? Maybe some of you know that Syracuse is a refugee resettlement city. That is, a thousand new Americans come from far-off places to find refuge and, and comfort and stability in this city. It is the role and task of the church, the people of God, those who have received this revelation, who know this God, to say, welcome to Syracuse. How can we care for you? How can we treat you as family? This is God's heart. How about the widow, verse 22, or the, or the fatherless child? Do you know that in 2008 an article came out about central New York? 45% of births at those hospitals in the city, 45% of the births were to an unwed mother. That's one, almost one out of every two. This is our community. This is our context. Fatherless children. So how do we represent the heart of God? Do we ignore them? Does the church which it has historically done just go, she messed up? Do we almost posture ourselves as picketers at her house? If you only were righteous, then we would love you. I don't think that's the heart of God. No, we see that grace is in God, and now grace should be in the people of God. If you mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I'll kill you with the sword. There is within the heart of God just a compassion, a care, a concern, a deep love for those who are most vulnerable in society. That heart should be in us. How about the poor? What a radical statement. If somebody needs money, give it to them. Sure, they can pay you back, but no interest. Some of you are thinking, well, if I lend them the money, the market rates, then the cost of time and some paperwork, right? God's saying, listen, if, if a brother needs help, if the poor is hurting, understand that you are my steward, that all things that you have, I've given to you. Now, live, with, live your life with an open hand because I'm a gracious God and you're a people marked by that grace and I want to see that grace represented in you. How are we as the people of God caring for the poor in this community? We have to ask that question because that's the nature of our God. What about our neighbors? It's... On the one hand, people that live close to you. But as we know, the scriptures often talk about neighbors as just being anyone else. Your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's like opening up. The definitive characteristic of those who have received my grace is that they are gracious. They're compassionate. And the most radical of statements comes at the end, right? Our enemies. Our enemies? Somebody that hates me, I'm supposed to orient my heart, the way I relate to him, with the grace of God, just unmerited favor. 
That guy threw weeds over his fence under my lawn. True story. At my house. And the mazes are there like, oh wait, we love Jesus. <laughs> We're like, which weeds are we throwing? Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> Sometimes your neighbor is your enemy kind of a thing, you know. Anyway, our heart towards those who hate us. Right? What's our heart towards our enemy? Again, the fundamental question becomes, what's God's heart towards his enemy? Right? That, it's natural, apart from knowing God, apart from experiencing the undeserved compassion and favor of God, apart from, to just say, forget about it. Who cares about them? Right? But we see that our God is gracious. He's compassionate. He takes the initiative to show favor, to pursue peace in relationship to those that are hostile to him, who are indeed his enemies. Love your enemies, Jesus says. So if we're going to represent the righteousness of God, guess what? Grace is the distinctive quality in every single relationship we have. And I'm not talking about the grace that accommodates sin. I'm not talking about our twist-up, jacked-up version of grace where we just go, it's all good. That's not the grace we're talking about here. Remember, we're in the midst of the law. That there is grace that fuels expectation, transformation of life, that we are no longer living in the ways of this world, but now our life is a representation of the God who has created us and redeemed us and has now given us this grace. It's a grace very much tethered to truth. Amen? But grace is, that God's grace is the definitive marker of our relationship with all those we know, especially those that are most vulnerable. Is that you? Is grace the trump card in your life? Who in your life are you saying, no, not him? Not them. They don't deserve it. Let God's grace enter in there. Open your heart to His grace and allow it to, what? Be given to that person. Grace. Definitive marker of the people of God. That's Old Testament and New School. Right? Grace. Grace. But not only grace. I'm going to read another section with you. And we'll see that God is concerned about how we relate to the most vulnerable, but He's also concerned very much about how we worship Him. A holy God desires a holy people that worship in a holy manner. Write that down. A holy God desires a holy people that worship Him in a holy manner. We're going to read 22, 18 through 20. We're going to read 28 through 31. And then I believe uh, 23, 13 
in 18 through 19. I know we're all over the place, but this is how I see it. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Pay attention, verse 13 of 23, to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be on your lips. Verse 18 and 19. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the fruit, first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. A holy God desires a holy people to worship him in a holy manner. If the last section was kind of seen through the lens of, for I am compassionate, I will hear. There's a verse in uh, 22, verse 31 that I think defines this particular section for me. You shall be consecrated to me. That is, a holy God, because consecration is rooted in being set apart as holy, a holy God desires a holy people, be holy for I am holy, to worship in a holy manner. These are the ways that you as a holy people worship me as a holy God. We do not get to decide how we worship God. The Maisie family has what we call our family vision. Now, I haven't seen that in a while, so you can, you know, say what you want about that. Um, actually, I did because I looked it up for this message. What happens is we put stuff on the wall, and then some kids like, and then we're like, where'd the vision go? I don't know. Right? That's just our family. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so the Maisie family vision starts out like this. Listen to this. We, the Maisie family, being saved by God's grace. Grace foundation. Seek to worship God the way he wants us to. That's our primary desire as a family, at least stated. Usually it's eat steak and salt potatoes. Um, but vision, where we want to see our family is that we worship God the way he wants us to. That's God's primary heart, that we worship him, that we celebrate him, that we enjoy him, that we love him. But we don't get to decide how we get to do that. I'm going to worship Jesus on the golf course this Sunday, Daddy. Uh, no, Silas, you can't do that. <laughs> You only can worship God the way He wants you to. And it's His heart that you be with His people. We're good at defining how we worship, right? Oh yeah, this is Jesus, and this is how we're going to worship Jesus. And we don't root it in the truth. We don't root it in God's expectation. We come up with our own. And oftentimes what we see is that we worship God not the way He wants us to, but the way we want to. And if we actually take a step further, we worship God 
in a way that is acceptable and consistent with the world in which we live. That's what God is trying to confront his people with in these verses. Although Canaanite uh, fertility rituals and worship are like this, and the place you're going, the expectation from the people that you're kind of going to in the land are these things. This is how you worship God. You're not to worship God the way they do. You worship God the way I say you will. Right? Because a holy God, other, separate, transcendent, wants a holy people, other, separate, transcendent, to what? Worship in a way that is consistent with his character and holiness. Not the culture. Man, we need to hear this in evangelicalism. Right, when we go to a particular place as missionaries and we, we preach the gospel, we cannot for one minute think that we are going to bring culture with it. That is, American culture, some other culture, some weird Christian Michael W. Smith wearing, you are welcome for that, uh, Michael W. Smith t-shirt wearing culture. That's, that's not the gospel. But that culture is not the gospel. But it's something that transforms culture. It changes the game. It changes the culture to be a reflection and representation of the God that is taking initiative to reach it. And so we see verse what? 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Sorcery was big. Magic. Divination. Mediums. Trying to call on evil things to get answers. Right? That's the simple form. Don't do that. Rid sorcery in your midst. That's Canaanite fertility stuff. That's not worship of the true holy God known as Yahweh. You are not to what? Lie down with an animal. That sounds disgusting, but it was just part of worship for the Canaanite people. You're not to do that, he says. And then whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone should be devoted to destruction. Pluralism, many gods, that's not you. I am the one true God. You will worship me alone. You will not sacrifice to any other God but me. Right? This idea that we need to worship God, not the way culture would accept, but the way that God would have us worship him. Think the best way to understand our tendency is this word. We sync up with culture. Right? We live in a day and age where we sync up everything, don't we? iCloud to iPhone to this to that, to this, but we're all synced up. Right? And the actual term is syncretism. Right? We're synced up with culture. Syncretism is the, the blending of Christian beliefs and practices with those of the, the dominant culture so that Christianity loses its distinctiveness. Or as Jesus put it, the salt is what? No longer salty. Guys, there's holiness in the God that we worship, and it's his expectation that our worship be holy. It's different. It's other. It's representative of the God we worship, not the culture in which we live. And yet, I'm not saying don't contextualize. I'm not saying that 
the community that God has placed us speaks nothing to who we are and how we worship Him. Because remember, culture's neutral, right? At least that's my take on it. But when we blend things, when we attempt to reach a practical baby boomer uh, society, our gospel quickly becomes seven steps to successful living. We're allowing the values to shape the message. This is it, seven steps to being a better communicator. Next Sunday, push back on me. Maybe I'm wrong. How about when Christians add a rainbow to their Facebook profile? Is that syncretism? Just throwing that out there. Confessions, beliefs, celebrations, and joys of culture baptized and called Christianity. We're really good at baptizing things, right? And I don't want to get into the yoga people, but my favorite is Christian yoga. It's like, okay, if you want to stretch, just stretch, man. You know, put some Lecrae on. But don't call it Christian yoga. That's just like, what are we doing? You know, yoga is what it is, people. <laughs> we got to baptize everything. <laughs> if you want to stretch, stretch. Nothing unbiblical about staying loose. <laughs> you know? Anyway, I think we do this. This is what we do. And yet the Lord says, pay no attention to all that I've, er, pay, yeah, pay attention to all that I've said to you. And make no mention of the names of other gods. There's no room for us to worship in a way culture would expect. There's no room for the people of God to what? Worship another. I saved you from Egypt. Mike, I saved you from your sin. I brought you into I died for you on the cross, Mike. Nobody else did that. Jesus, what? was risen from the dead. Nobody else did that. So he alone gets our allegiance and our worship, and he's the one that gets to define how we worship. We have a lot of repenting to do here, church. We're scratching the surface. But our worship must be holy. Our relationships must be gracious if we're going to represent that God. And our, our worship must be holy. Unwavering, undistracted, unpolluted allegiance to the holy God who has saved us. Is that you today? Is your heart divided? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. There's something else that my adoration, my affection goes toward. Today, turn to Him. Repent. Embrace Him as the sole Savior, forgiver, the only God. There's no one like him in all the earth. Somebody say amen to that. Lastly, I think we see that, that God again is putting forth his, his expectation that his people rest. And I'm going to be somewhat quick with this. You know, God made us and then he did what? On the seventh day he rested. Then he saved us. Uh, saved Israel, right? It's his people. And he called them to what? Enter into his rest. Rest. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. 
We see this in verse 10 of chapter 23 through 17. I'm going to read that and then we're going to finish up. Thanks for your patience, folks. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its field, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie follow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. It's okay to rest, folks. You must work. It's good to rest. Verse 14, three times a year, I'm sorry, three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread as I have commanded you. You shall not eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall, shall all your mouths appear before the Lord God. Based on creation, based on redemption, we continue to see this holy and righteous expectation that the rhythm of we share with our creator and redeemer is one of work rest work rest resting in god he is sufficient he has saved us he has provided for every need that we have and the feasts are a celebration of that rest celebrate, enjoy, cease from productivity, put the cell phone down, and rest in me. So for righteousness to be represented, we see grace in relationships, we see holiness in worship, and we see the people of God resting in the provision and salvation of their God. And I think that leads me to my final thought. Because again, when we approach the law, we get overwhelmed. There's a lot. And we get confronted with the fact that we are not righteous. We are not representing the God who is laying out these expectations. In fact, we're more hostile to those and indifferent to those who are vulnerable. We are what? We are picking ways that we want to worship God very much a reflection of American society, buying into ideas like prosperity and calling it worship, right? We're more prone to that, living the American dream, and we're less likely in our multitasking society to just sit down and stop and thank the Lord. This is our righteous God, but this is not us. In not cliche fashion, we come to the person, the work, the feet of Christ. He is the grace of God to us, for us. He is the holiness of God that's in our worship. 
and He is our Sabbath rest. So if you feel overwhelmed, great, because Christ is ready to give Himself to you. He is the grace of God. Amen? He is what gives us righteousness and holiness, that we are acceptable in God, that we can worship Him and not be killed by the sword. Because when God sees us, He sees the perfect righteousness and holiness of Jesus. For all those who have embraced Him by faith, He becomes that. And He is our rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is is there to be your rest. You see, because for righteousness to truly be represented by us, guess what? Righteousness must be given to us. Don't miss that. Write that one down too. For righteousness to be truly represented by us, God's righteousness must be given to us. And the good news of the gospel is that God's righteousness has indeed been given to us in Jesus. So if you're overwhelmed today, you're feeling the weight of sin, you're recognizing your need to repent and turn from indifference and hostility, from syncretism, from blending culture with Christianity too much, and from just refusing to rest in God, feeling like you've got to work harder and do better, Please, today, receive the righteousness of Jesus and worship Him in holiness. Can we do that today? I think of when we come to the table. Is that not what we're doing? I'd call the band forward. Is this not what we are doing? Are we not worshiping and celebrating God who is our righteousness? Who is the source of grace to us? unmerited favor and are we not saying you know what I don't have to do it Jesus did it for me and now as I receive that as I believe in Jesus Christ I become his gracious holy peaceful people that represent that to a world that needs it so desperately right Can we do that together? If you believe in Jesus, if He is your Savior and your Lord, we're going to spend some time responding to grace 